I guess I would, I would leave the listener by saying that, you know, sometimes you may listen to myself and these wonderful people that Nishant brings on the podcast and think, oh my gosh, I'm not there. I'm this, I'm that. And I, I, like I said in the beginning, I'm aiming for good enough (laughs) and we don't have to strive constantly to, to be able to have a great impact on our family and ourselves. And in fact, a little letting go, a little softening and providing ourselves with a soft landing, giving ourselves some grace is really a big part of that. So I guess I want to offer that to you, dear listener. Hey, my friends, this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Gurk Show. This is a podcast about helping you live a fulfilled life. And my job on this show is to invite the world-class experts to extract the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. This episode is brought to you by Friday Newsletter. Every Friday, I share an exclusive email to the newsletter subscribers, which mentions what I am learning, recent podcast updates, things I'm experimenting with, books I'm reading, and much, much more. You can find the newsletter link at my website, https colon slash slash nishantgarg.me, N-I-S-H-A-N-T-G-A-R-G dot me. And today's guest is Hunter Clark Fields. Hunter is a mindfulness mentor, host of the Mindful Mama podcast, creator of the Mindful Parenting course, and author of the book, Raising Good Humans. She helps parents bring more calm into their daily lives and cooperation in their families. Hunter has over 20 years of experience in meditation and yoga practices and has taught mindfulness to thousands worldwide. She is the mother of two active daughters who challenge her every day to hone her craft. In this episode, Hunter discusses about parenting, her own childhood and upbringing, relationship with her dad, how to show empathy with children, how to raise good humans and much much more. She also mentions how she is inspired by the Buddhist monk Thignathan and Dr. Wayne Dyer. Without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Hunter Clark Fields. Hunter, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Nishant. It's my pleasure and honor. So I want to ask you something very funny. Okay. If I were to ask your daughters, how would they describe what does mama do? How would they respond? (laughs) Well, they would respond different things at different ages. Currently, they're 11 and 14. So, you know, it's incredibly embarrassing that I've written a parenting book, (laughs) I'm sure. And so they might say I'm an author, you know, or I, I teach parents, you know, how to parent or something like that. I guess that's what they might say. I don't know. I've never thought about that. But yeah, they would probably like roll their eyes a little or something. <laughs> <laughs> if you are in a social gathering and somebody asks you, hey, Hunter, what do you do? How do you usually respond? Well, I say I am a mindfulness mentor for parents and I teach mindful parenting and I'm the author of you know, this book, Raising Good Humans. So that's how I would respond. 
my audience knows a lot about mindfulness i believe so when you say mindful mentor or mm-hmm. mindful parenting what do you mean by that well when i'm thinking i mean they're sort of separate things i guess mindfulness has been a big part of my life for a long time i've been studying and reading about it since i was a teenager and i'm a you know a certified mindfulness meditation instructor but and and it's been a big part of my life but when i think about mindful parenting it's really different from just mindfulness for parents sometimes i see people who teach what they call mindful parenting but it really is mindfulness for parents and mindfulness for parents is great and helpful parents need mindfulness that's why it's part of my mindful parenting course and and the membership but i think of mindful parenting as a little different cuz mindfulness for parents is like giving parents maybe the tools of mindfulness so we can lower our reactivity so that we can surf the waves so that we can be more present all these wonderful things so that we can start to develop more awareness in every area of our life have less less stress less depression less anxiety greater well-being all of those things so that we can be able to cultivate that muscle to be able to pause and and respond rather than react like that's really amazing but then what my mindful parenting course does that's different is that it we take all this important valuable work that inner work that we need to do this mindfulness for parents work we also pair it with something that is you know equally essential which is communication work so how can you communicate with your child so that you're you you don't have to fall back on the old school ineffective techniques of like threats and orders in order to have your life run smoothly and i think of you know mindful parenting is really about bringing that all together bringing together that inner work that we do you know when i developed it i was incredibly frustrated with the parenting tools and tips and techniques that i had been learning at the time because they didn't give me any advice on how to take care of my stress response how to heal those like inner well, that inner stuff that arises when we parent to even look at that right it was all more like just just say this and everything will be okay and i was like there's a lot of stuff before just say this and there's a lot of stuff before just pause right and i was equally frustrated with the mindfulness world which is which would teach mindfulness for parents which would say you know okay as long as we can just calm our stress response and and be less reactive then we'll just naturally know something better to say which i found to be equally untrue because i was in that position where i was able to calm myself down and then I would just say something unskillful that might have come out of my parents' mouth and it was like my little ticking time bomb of a daughter would just like go kaboom again. So, you know, it really needed the two needed to come together, the mindfulness and the skillful communication. What was frustrating about the mindfulness and other parenting techniques that you felt? Well, I mean, I guess just that, you know, like i said the you know in the mindfulness world there's this assumption that if we could just calm down and take care of our stress response then we'd all everything would just be fine after that and the, and that the truth is that's not that's not true what we think as we think we have these sort of parenting instincts but really we have causes and conditions and we were raised in a certain culture 
and in a certain family. And when we get back into that parent-child relationship on the other side of it, we have certain habits and patterns and habit energies that arise. And we have certain unspoken beliefs and assumptions that we don't generally examine. And so we can calm ourselves down, but then we might communicate in an unskillful kind of old school way of parenting, you know, for instance, giving our toddler (laughs) 12 hours straight of orders, put on your shoes, pick up your toy, do this, right? And nobody actually really likes to be ordered around, but we don't, until we start to learn those communication pieces and also learn what the things that are not so skillful, we don't really understand why it's kind of like not working, why there's so much resistance. So that was my frustration on the mindfulness side. And then on the communication side, it was that (laughs) there were so many parenting coaches saying, just respond this way, just say this, just say that. And the truth is that's incredibly frustrating there is that when our stress response is triggered, which it is a lot by kids, they're they're experts at finding those places. Like we become like, you'll be surprised. We become like one big button to be pushed, right? And so that when that nervous system stress response is triggered, you actually don't have access to like your full brain. We we evolved reactive parenting, you know, on purpose to keep ourselves safe, right? And, but when we are, our stress response is triggered, that, that part of the brain, that fight, flight, or freeze part of the brain is literally bypassing the rest of the brain so that you can be reactive. So all those like good way, things to say, like you literally just don't even have access to them unless you're taking care of your stress response, calming down the nervous system, steadying the heart and the mind. So there's a couple of things on both sides. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and before we get into the weeds of mindful parenting and other mindfulness, I want to ask you about your own childhood. What was your relationship like with your dad specifically? Yeah, I, I, I'm very grateful now for my relationship with my dad because it was a catalyst for all the work that I did. But my dad is an amazing guy. He's really like a, I think he's, he, he wouldn't like to characterize himself this way, but he's highly sensitive artist type. And he developed a lot of defenses to, to, and strategies to get through his challenging childhood. And then when I came along, being a highly sensitive artist type myself, and <laughs> was really, really kind of pushed back against the just do what I say kind of parenting, it really triggered him. You know, it triggered his, his, his anger because, you know, that was what he was given when he was a kid. So he, it felt unacceptable to him when I had big upset feelings. And so he, you know, he was, he, he's a little bit of both worlds. He's incredibly supportive, incredibly enthusiastic. And then he had a a big badass rage. And I used to remember like hiding behind my door in my room, hearing him storming down the hall. And the truth is that our relationship was really damaged by his kind of old school parenting techniques for a long time. You know, it wasn't until I did a lot of my own work and was well into my late 
you know, it was, it was a good decade where we really couldn't hang out, be in the same space together for very long. And that's sort of a shame, you know, because I know he loved me. He loves me very much and loved me very much, but he just didn't have the the skills and didn't have the to be able to take to be able to take care of his big feelings that would arise. Do you remember any memorable conversation with him that may have had the positive impact in your life? Oh, yeah, for sure. He was, for many years, I was a painter, and he was very, very enthusiastic about that. And it was kind of like the the opposite of most families where it's like, <laughs> go be a doctor or a lawyer. You know, he was like living my, vicariously through me getting some paintings into a New York show. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's a really, really smart and self-reflective guy. And, you know, I remember him you know, as I started to do this work and started to transform what was happening in my own family, I remember one time he came to visit and, you know, he, he said to me, you know, when I was a kid, my, my father used to beat me with a strap and their relationship was really damaged by his childhood, you know, kind of still is, you know, grandpa's 94 now and we're 97. Oh my God. Yeah, and there's still not not a lot of warm feeling there. And he said, "I, you know, and I spanked you." And and he said, "But you know, you're not hitting your kids, and and that's great. Like that's this this progress." And it was really, I really appreciated his his self awareness in that moment, and you know, his ability to kind of see what was going on and. You know, for me, I also I agreed, and I also felt like, well, yes, and not hitting my kids is not enough. <laughs> I would like to have a a closer relationship than that. Were you ever yelled at? Oh yeah, for sure, yelled at, spanked. Yeah, <laughs> one time my mom hit me with a wooden spoon on my leg, and I was old enough at that point that I took the other wooden spoon and I hit her back on her leg. Oi. <laughs> <laughs> At what point in your life you realized that you needed to learn more skills to be a great parent? Yeah. And I, I would also say that I'm, I, I don't know about great parent, but what I'm aiming for is I'm aiming for a good enough parent. <laughs> I, you know, I knew that I knew that I needed to take care of myself, you know, because I, my own I was in this like very, I'd sort of fall into these pits of feeling depressed and unable to take handle life every several weeks or two. And I'm, I'm pretty, you know, I was, it was kind of roller coaster emotion. So I knew I needed that. And that set me on my study of mindfulness. And then after my daughter was born, I remember when my, I was pregnant, I had finally started my own meditation practice, maybe like a year and a half earlier. And I remember being in a, group of meditators with my big pregnant belly and thinking like, oh yeah, I got this, <laughs> you know, like she's going to be so calm and peaceful. And this is going to be amazing. And, and I, you know, the, the reality hit me like a ton of bricks because she was of course very highly sensitive and she had a lot of resistance to the kind of like ways I was parenting her, which was, you know, I just kind of 
you know, going, doing what we do in our culture, and it wasn't really very effective. And, and she had a lot of pushback. And so I started to really, really dive into an intensive period of study and learning then. What is your current meditation practice? Now I wake up every morning and I I sit in meditation. That period of time can be I have a you know I have a a place at the other side of my room. I I get my cushion, I get a little bit of reading, I get my timer or I grab a guided meditation. I really enjoy the guided meditations on the Plum Village app and I sit for, you know, it could be anywhere. If, if I don't have a lot of time that day, I'll sit for 10 minutes. could be maybe 35 or 40 minutes on days when I have a lot of time and I'm feeling moved to generally around 20, 25 minutes. And that's my practice. And then I also am lucky enough that because I teach mindful parenting and I'm teaching, you know, mindful parenting teacher training, I get to experience more, more moments of meditation throughout my day, <laughs> usually in these coaching sessions. So that's, that's really nice. I'm, I'm not like, I'm not, you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm very human. <laughs> I, at the end of the day, I was, I, I talked to people for the Mindful Mama podcast who, you know, practice at the end of the day. And I'm not like that at the end of the day. That, that kind of like five o'clock, I have a glass of wine and I start to like think about dinner and I'm a little bit more of like a, a Netflix at the end of the day kind of person. What is your favorite wine? <laughs> oh, I'm really into rosé right now. <laughs> <laughs> Are you watching any specific movie or documentary on Netflix? I've, since the pandemic, I've been very interested. I have decided that I don't want to watch, I want to watch things that feel good, <laughs> you know? And I realized that sometimes I would watch things that don't feel good and I don't like that. So anyway, what to, I'm watching now is Schitt's Creek, <laughs> which I've enjoyed. I am on season two. <laughs> <laughs> it gets even better as they go along. You mentioned about Plum Village app. Do you follow any specific teacher? Yeah, I would, I think, I would say my main teacher has been the Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. And I, I've been reading his books for <laughs> since I was sev 17 or so. And he has something like 90 different, 90 different books. So he, there's a lot there. But and I've been, you know, he, he his voice is just so he makes this the teachings very accessible, but it's also very profound. I remember when I was in graduate school, he came to Boston when I was in grad school and he went to the Boston Convention Center and it was this free event and we went and I went into this convention center room and there were like 10,000 people there, <laughs> you know, like literally nine or 10,000 people there. And it was silent, completely silent. And it was so, such a profound experience and to hear him him speak there was very profound and then i i've been lucky enough to be able to to go on retreats at the blue cliff monastery which is in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh in new york state and i was able to take my daughter when she was six the two of us went 
and we camped at, we had tents, <laughs> we had a, a little tent and she, we went together for the last time he came to the United States was in 2013. And it's really lovely because there's like thousands of people there, but he always gathers the children up to the very front at the beginning of a Dharma talk and begins every Dharma talk with a talk for the children. And so I got to sit right in the front <laughs> with my six-year-old daughter. <laughs> and one time she, I had given her a little sketchbook so that she could like draw while sitting in this situation that was, you know, you're kind of expected to be pretty quiet. And so she had, had drawn the big bell and something else. And anyway, she gave her drawing of the big bell to Thich Nhat Hanh and he took it. And then he used it in his Dharma talk, talking about how the paper, you know, the, that how the sunshine and the rain are in the paper, because the sunshine and the rain are in the trees, and the trees are in the paper, and we cannot take the sunshine and the rain out of the paper. We would not have any paper if we didn't have any sunshine and rain. And it was really, really beautiful, very profound. Do you remember any specific book or books from Tiknathan that you enjoy reading or had made the most impact on you? Yes. One that had a huge impact when I was younger was Peace is Every Step. And I have tried to, I'd lent it sometime a long time ago and I can't find it anymore. And I've been enjoying Peace of Mind as well. And he also wrote... I think a, a less known book of his, uh, I think is pretty interesting for people who are interested in mindfulness and the origins of the Buddha and things like that. He wrote a story of the, of the Buddha, which is called old path, white clouds. And it's quite a, quite a big book, but I think that's a, it's a really lovely version. How did you get introduced into the mindfulness world at the age of 17? It was kind of a roundabout introduction, I'd have to say. I was very up and down, as I told you, and I was desperate for some relief. And so I started looking around for, for books in my first in my parents' library. <laughs> and the first book on like Buddhism or mindfulness that I discovered was a little bit esoteric. They had, you know, those pocket books that are, you know, about three inches big. They had one that was of Zen koans. And if you if you know what Zen koans are, they're like these little poems that are basically designed to break your brain, <laughs> break your thinking <laughs> mind. And they were incredibly like, I just was like, so I would take this book because I had an after school job that I would bike to this yacht service company and I would and I would do like secretarial services for this like one guy company. And then I had some free time. So I took the book with me to kind of look at it. and. It, it didn't make any sense to me at all, but it got me curious. And then I started exploring bookstores on my own and found Thich Nhat Hanh. Would you mind talking about what was going on when you were 17? You mentioned that you were desperate. You were not feeling good. What happened? Oh, yeah. You know, and I think it, it all ties back to, to my childhood. And, and I'm, I don't feel the the victim in any way. But, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, there was a lot of turmoil because I was very resistant to 
my dad and the discipline techniques they were using. And it's interesting now that I've I've read the research on how spanking and harsh disciplinary tactics like increase chances of you know kids becoming delinquents and doing drugs and all these really harmful things. And I did all those things. I was I was smoking pot. I was doing hallucinogenic drugs with my friends and staying out all night <laughs> and drinking. And I, you know, at, at one point with after an argument with my dad, I even left home and stayed at a friend's house and you know, kind of like ran away for the a night. I think that happened a couple of times. So there's turmoil at home and I I kind of, I felt okay because I was getting good grades, right? Like that was the marker. (laughs) That was the outside marker of like, I guess everything's okay if you're getting good grades. But I, I really felt very, you know, I really would go into these deep highs and deep lows. I didn't, you know, I mean, I guess it's a, how a lot of teens are, right? Where you just, there's so much turmoil, but so I just wanted some peace. I was kind of with, at one point, I, you know, at that point I had been with a not very great group of friends who were <laughs> influencing me to do not great things. And so I, I had kind of broken away from them and I was getting more into my, my art room friends, but I didn't quite sort of know who I was or had my feet on the ground yet. And and I really wanted something to ground me. And, and that helped enormously. I have one follow-up question on this. How did you feel when you were spanked? Oh, God, just like outright terror. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I'd have, I'm, I have forgiven my father. <laughs> and I love him very much. Because I know that he was only doing what was normal and expected. And in many ways, it's still normal and expected. And it's interesting if you think about it now. I heard recently someone describe spanking as this, and it really makes sense to me that it's really the only form. It's a form of state-sanctioned domestic violence, right? Like this is this is domestic violence. But because it's with kids, we say it's okay. And it's it's interesting to think about our ideas around that. And if that if as I say that, state domestic violence, like does it make you feel something, Nishant, or the listener, right? Like it's like it pushes against our our cultural ideas about what's acceptable. I have read some research that if a woman doesn't have a good relationship with her dad, she might treat her partner, romantic partner not in a good way, unless she has done some therapeutic work. Has that sort of relationship showed up with your spouse partner? No, actually. So I have, I hadn't, I've never actually done therapy, but I've done a lot of inner work around the my relationship with my dad. I've done a lot of forgiveness and, and such with him and understanding and and I've done a lot of artwork about it I think <laughs> anyway but I met my husband Bill when we were both 20 years old I met him in college and we had almost met many times apparently I he was a he was a DJing at a party I made his record skip once <laughs> dancing <laughs> and I didn't actually meet him but we met one time leaving a, a movie 
with a group of friends and it was like this cold, dark October night and it was miserable and gross out. And we were walking in the same direction. So we just started talking and ended up in this like 45 minute long conversation <laughs> about but he had been, he was also a, he's a computer science and, and Eastern philosophy double major at the time. So we had this shared interest in, in Buddhism and Taoism. And we got to talking about that. And I, I'm very lucky with my, my husband. He's a, a real gentle soul, a real thinker and an incredible supporter in, in so many ways. Very A very grounding relationship for me. What do you mean by grounding relationship with him? Well, you know, I think that, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not completely certain about what happened in my own childhood. But if you have, you know, if you have a child has a secure attachment relationship when they're young with their parents, that's like this secure connection with a parent is one of the great predictors of a child's well-being, you know, of being able to then go on and create secure relationships in your future, right? And I'm not sure how secure my relationship was at that point, at least with my dad and my mom. It's probably a very secure relationship. But with Bill, I think it was like this, this adult secure attachment relationship. It was like a way to kind of heal that wound. That is awesome. Yeah. How do you distribute your parenting responsibilities with your partner? And I'm sure a lot of listeners would want to know that when we have children, how do we talk about dividing or distributing mm -hmm. child responsibilities? Who should do this? Who should do that? And what kind of a conversation we should have with a partner? Those are incredibly important conversations to have. I decided to leave the work that I was doing to to be able to have my kids and raise them. I wasn't terribly happy at what, what I was doing at the time, so it was a really easy decision for me. I was teaching high school art, actually. And so it, in many situations like that, it's very easy for the mother to fall into the sort of like cultural stereotype that comes from our patriarchal culture that, you know, sh you do all the things and your worth is only, you know, you, you're only as valuable as what you bring and what you do. But I, I happily did not have a, a lot of that baggage. Actually, my mom was really, she, she really modeled taking care of herself in a really beautiful way, like in a just no nonsense kind of way, which I really liked. So as a, feminist and a believer in, you know, equal and shared responsibilities. That was, that was part of our conversation all along. In the beginning, when the baby had, was nursing, I would get up at night and nurse the baby. But when the baby didn't need sustenance in the night, then it was Bill's turn <laughs> to get up in the middle of the night and get the baby. He's, he's always been very active and very, very much an equal parenting partner. I think that when, you know, when my kids were little, they used to call us mommy, daddy. <laughs> Either <laughs> of us were mommy, daddy <laughs> sometimes. And I think that spoke to the, their ability to be able to get their needs met from either of us. You know, he was just as much a secure parenting 
parent figure as I was, you know, just as much easily. With children comes a lot of responsibilities and sometimes parents forget to focus on themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So how should couples focus on themselves and still work on their romantic relationship? <laughs> it's so much to ask, right? It's kind of crazy, I think, how we're all so, we're so isolated and we're supposed to, you know, we ask, you know, we think we should be able to do all these things without any support. It's kind of crazy. So I just want to point to the that fact that our culture is not very supportive of parents and that we don't live in a like an extended group of aunties and uncles who can take care of kids. <laughs> <laughs> and that is really hard. It makes it really, really hard for, for parents to like take care of hit check all those all those boxes, so to speak. But I think it's really important to think about what what do you want? How do you want it to look? What is your vision for what you want your family life to be? And I think it's really important for parents to understand that, you know, the first five years of a child's life, that those early childhood years, and if you got multiple kids, those are some of the most intensive demanding times of your life. You know, so I would encourage parents to say, if you have some resources, get yourself some more support and to not martyr yourself in any, you know, in a way. So for instance, my husband and I, at some, at one point when my daughter was little, we had my daughter, I think we had both of those daughters at that point. Anyway, he he got a raise from his his employer. And it was like this 3% thing or something. And we we're like, okay, well, how should we use this? And he actually did the research and looked into what would give us the greatest happiness, <laughs> which I love <laughs> that he did that. He said, we should use this, this raise money to get a steady, regular babysitter <laughs> and and to have more go out more. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yes, you know, and I think that's such a really such a wise decision because it's really an, an it was an investment in our relationship and our steadiness and our happiness and our peace of, you know, our mind to be able to have some time with each other. Whereas, you know, we might have maybe paid down our house earlier or <laughs> <laughs> maybe had a little more money in investment, but I think that was a wise use of resources was to invest in those early years a little bit more support. I love this. I'm always fascinated by any topic related to relationships, life, love, sex, and much more. So how often do you go on dates now? Well, it has really dropped in the pandemic. Yeah, no that that has that has been a not a, a place that has thrived in during the pandemic. So I don't know. Maybe I should ask. You should ask this question of me in like another year. <laughs> <laughs> That's something we need to revive at this point. It wasn't ever always ever every week that seemed to be like too demanding. It was more like maybe twice a month, once a month, depending on what was going on that month. And now, how do you define happiness for you and for your life? Hmm. I mean, I think happiness is it's taking nothing for granted as best you can, being awake and aware enough to see the 
the amazing gift that the crocuses in my yard are right now and to be able to appreciate that to to make a practice of appreciation you know i think that's that's really there and then beyond that like you know having joy making it so that you know I'll, creating a life that cultivates joy so in our life we're conscious conscious of not, you know, we're, we simply, we've simplified things, you know, as much as we can, we don't want to have to spend our weekends cleaning out a garage (laughs) of stuff, but we take time to, you know, our house could probably use a, a replacement of the, the shakes on the roof. Like there's some, some, some things that could happen, but we, we invest in, we're going to you know, we're taking travel and taking trips and taking our kids to do experiences. And, you know, knowing that experiences are really one of the most valuable things that we have. I mean, I think this is such a amazing planet we have. There's so much to see. There's so much to experience. So we don't try to cram it all in. Then we take our time. But yeah, we want to to, to take our, our, to travel and to, to consciously cultivate joyful experiences too. You are an artist, you enjoy painting and this topic has come up many times. So I'm curious to ask you, could you expand more on your artistic view of life and your painting as a painter? How do you see life and what kind of painting do you do now? I think painting and drawing is such an incredibly incredible skill to cultivate and anyone can cultivate it because it teaches you how to see clearly. You you see you you realize what you think you see and then we have, you realize what a difference there is between what you think you see and what reality is. It's really interesting to see that to really see what are the colors or to, you know to really see that there's like an incredible purple in that shadow or that that shape is nothing like you thought it was and the position is way different than you thought it was so i, I really am a fan of observational drawing and painting i'm not doing a lot of painting right now i think a lot of my creative energy has gone into raising good humans and the work i do the most intensive period of painting in my life was around when I had kids and was pregnant and I was wrestling with the ideas of motherhood and our animalness. And, you know, because motherhood is a very bizarre, it's a really bizarre experience to have a a human being growing in your body. Like you have like multiple sets of eyeballs in your body. Like that's just crazy. (laughs) (laughs) you know. And it's very, it's, you know, culture paints it as this very, you know, are kind of very, you know, rational, cerebral kind of patriarchal culture paints it as this very like pink and fluffy kind of thing. And it's really like kind of gross and oozy. (laughs) And it's like, you just realize that you are a mammal, right? You're an animal. And I, I think that we are very, in some ways, very out of touch with our bodies. And we have a lot of shame around our feelings like if we have feelings of especially for women aggression or anger 
we have a lot of shame around that, whereas they're just, they are feelings that arise in every human being. So my paintings, the most intensive period painting I had are these bestiary paintings, and they're these series of predators' heads on nude pregnant women's bodies. And they're they're kind of strange and bizarre, and sometimes they're snarling at somebody <laughs> or yawning, and it just is like, I'm turning my head. You could hear my sound because I'm looking at them. They're in my studio. But just, I wanted to, I was wrestling with a bunch of ideas there. I was wrestling with the idea of wanting to even eat meat. You know, I I had cravings for meat, but I had been in this, I'd been semi-vegetarian for many years. And I was thinking about the how the predators have no guilt and shame about hunting and killing their food, you know, and just this the way we're so separated from our our animal kind of nature. And I guess I was just kind of connecting them. I don't know, providing, I wanted the paintings to just acknowledge and provide permission for us to feel the various anim- animal na- things that we feel in, that are in our animal nature. If somebody wants to cultivate how to be a painter or how to start painting, then could you point to some resources online or anywhere we can go to? Honestly, no, (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't, I couldn't. I know there's going to be a million resources, but I don't know them. It's been something I, since my dad was an artist, it's been something I've been doing since I was, he used to watch me in his studio and, and I would be painting on blocks of wood in his, his art studio as a, you know, before I got to have a memory. So it's been something I've been doing all my life and has been kind of, you know, part of my schooling. So I don't, I don't really have the resources in this 2021 world. (laughs) Got it. I want to ask you about empathy. Children live in a very different world. Then how does someone practice empathy with them? Or how do you practice good communication, empathy with your own children? Well, I think empathy is the first ingredient for that. Somehow we we live in a culture that's kind of real harsh on children. We tend to be very, we tend to be kind of anti-child in a lot of ways. We don't understand and that we aren't empathetic with children, right? Which is empathy is kind of putting yourself in in that person's shoes. And to to have empathy for children is to understand that there really is no such thing as bad behavior. What kids are doing is they're just trying to go get their needs met. <laughs> you know, whether that's a need for autonomy or attention or, you know, affection or whatever those needs are. Their behavior and really all humans' behavior is about getting our needs met. And so when we can shift to seeing all behavior, literally all the behavior as some attempt to get needs met, then we can start to be a little bit more curious, a little bit more like a scientist. What's going on for my child right now? What are the needs that are happening here? And we can understand that when kids act badly, they're feeling badly. When anybody acts badly, they're feeling badly. So it, it, as if we can start to really realize that, and by the word realize, I mean, not just kind of know it intellectually, but make it real in our bodies and our minds. 
then we can shift the way we approach children. And one of the things we have to realize is that the behaviorist approach to children of like, we're going to inflict reward or punishment to motivate behavior we want or don't want, it it really is incredibly ineffective with kids. It, it doesn't work so well. And it because it creates resistance and it creates disconnection in between the child and you. And when children are motivated to cooperate with you when they feel connected, when you have a close connected relationship. And then the other thing that I just want to share here is that our kids are generally kind of crap at doing what we say anyway, and they're great at doing what we do. We're much better at modeling the behavior. So we find ourselves in situations as parents, and this is just all of us do, and it's not something for us to be harsh and mean and shame ourselves for where we're we're yelling and we're frustrated, but we can't yell at our kids to stop yelling. <laughs> it just it doesn't make any sense. It reduces trust. It, it just puts them into a fight, flight, or freeze state. They can't learn anything when they're being yelled at. And so the work of calming our own reactivity, creating habits that steady the heart and the mind and the nervous system is really that first most essential work. Really, the wor- there's a really Im- important imperative to heal our own stuff so that then we can be the that presence for our child so that we can, instead of being reactive, we can step back and say, huh, what's going on here? What, you know, what, what's driving this? And then start to get curious. And when we can do that, then we can respond much more effectively. What are the practices to be calmer with ourselves so that we can be calmer and peace with our children and with others? Well, I highly recommend a meditation practice and a mindfulness practice because it just really helps to anchor your day in stopping because we tend to go, go, go and do everything on autopilot. And it really is enormously helpful to take five minutes, three minutes, one minute to just stop and sit and be. And that helps us to build that muscle of non-reactivity. Really also, it's like amazing what it shows in the brain scans with that. But also, there's a lot of things we can do in the moments. You know, we can, we can like understanding the nervous system a little bit more. Like each inhale is a mini stress response. You know, it, it excites the body and increases the heart rate. Each exhale is a mini rest and relax response, which calms the body. So we, we, in every inhale and exhale, our body is, balancing the nervous system, right? And so when we know that, we can consciously do things like using a longer, slower exhale to calm the nervous system. We can do things like sitting down on the ground (laughs) to lower ourselves and put our, our body position in a less aggressive body position. You know, if you're standing towering over a tiny person, that's an um, an aggressive body position. So you can sit yourself down, maybe put your hands on the ground, take a long, slow, deep breath, which is cliche because it works. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and then respond from that place. But really like 
taking care of your overall stress is one of the biggest things that parents can do. You know, if you're not getting enough sleep, if you haven't seen your friends, if you, you know, you're, you're not getting any exercise, taking care of your needs and your overall needs to getting a break from your lovely, you know, incredibly frustrating some child, right? The, taking care of your overall stress is one of the biggest things you can do. Hunter, what is your sleep routine? Oh, I like to sleep. <laughs> During the pandemic, where I haven't had to get my kids to a bus stop, I sleep even more. So I am in bed at uh, like 9.15, 9.20, and I read until 9.45 or 10. And then I now I don't wake up with an alarm anymore, so it's really nice. So I sleep anywhere until... Um, Six till seven thirty in the morning now. <laughs> it's really lovely. It's quite luxurious. <laughs> what do you usually read before going to bed? I read. I usually read a novel before I go to bed. I sometimes I read something that's more inspirational before I go to bed, like like one a book by. Thich Nhat Hanh or Jack Kornfield, but most often it's just a novel. I just like to relax and read a book. <laughs> and in the preparation of this conversation, I I found your Huffington Post, which you wrote back in 2017 or 2018. And it is about expansion and contraction. Life expands and life contracts. So I read that article, so I understand a bit. Could you briefly describe about expansion and contraction to our listeners? Mm. Well, it's been four years since I wrote that article, Nishant, so <laughs> I'm going to have to remember what was on my mind at that time. Out in general. I mean, I th when I think of expansion and contraction, I think of, you know, we, in a lot of, I, one of the things I think of is our comfort zone, that we live in a culture that's very, geared towards making us be more comfortable and keeping us in our comfort zone and staying safe and <laughs> having more and more comfortable life. But the truth is that and growth and expansion requires us to step outside of our comfort zone. It requires us to feel feelings that may be, that may be different and unfamiliar and unusual. And that can keep a lot of people from doing any work to grow and expand because it's unfamiliar and uncomfortable. But I think that we are, obviously we want to spend some time in our comfort zone every day. I do that. Obviously I'm like reading my novels before I go to bed, but we want to also spend some time experience, you know, knowing that ex doing things that grow us, that change us, that, and that requires us to maybe be a little uncomfortable. And so we don't want to jump to like way outside our comfort zone, but maybe just keep pushing the edges of that comfort zone a little bit more. And that's that's what I think of now in 2021 when I think of expansion and contraction. I actually enjoyed reading the article and I will put that article link in the show notes and in my newsletter. What is your relationship with Wayne Dyer? Oh. Well, definitely an inspiring writer. 
I just lent his book to somebody. I love a lot of his ideas that he he shared. I think he helps relieve a lot of guilt for people in some ways. One of the things that I think of is that as a as a person who's running a business, right? I'm like I I have books, I have the membership, I do teacher training, and in that sort of helping and healing world, a lot of us can be afraid of even charging money for our business and and I think it's really one of the things that stuck with me that he said was that you know like just as you can't get sick enough to help somebody get better you can't get poor enough to help somebody get wealthy right like you it it doesn't help us to sacrifice our our own health wealth and happiness to help other people but in fact back to that expansion thing actually when we when we expand when we grow then we can give more to the world and i think that's that was a very helpful idea for me along the way i asked you about wayne dyer because his teachings have transformed my life oh some some of his books are the power of intention change your thoughts change your life i have so many books and i i listen to his talks almost every day oh, wow. in the morning from last 4 years wow that's great yes the power of intention that was the title of the book that i just lent out <laughs> <laughs> all right so b- before we conclude our conversation hunter do you have anything to share for our listeners and where would you like our listeners to find you sure i i guess i would I would leave the listener by saying that, you know, sometimes you may listen to myself and these wonderful people that Nishant brings on the podcast and think, oh my gosh, I'm not there. I'm this, I'm that. And I, I, like I said in the beginning, I'm aiming for good enough (laughs) and we don't have to strive constantly to, to be able to have a great impact on our family and ourselves. And in fact, a little letting go, a little softening and providing ourselves with a soft landing, giving ourselves some grace is really a big part of that. So I guess I want to offer that to you, dear listener, that practice that I talk about in Raising Good Humans of self-compassion. And if you want to get Raising Good Humans, you can find it anywhere books are sold and it is an audio book format. And you can find me at mindfulmamamentor.com. You can learn about mindful parenting and the teacher training and the podcast. The Mindful Mama podcast is anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you want to see the back behind the scenes of my life, I'm at Mindful Mama Mentor on Instagram. Awesome. I really love how you explain that. We all struggle. And my I would say my vulnerable moment, I... If I sleep about eight hours, seven to eight hours, I really feel great. And last night I slept around five to six hours. So I have to do some patchwork today. So life, we always strive for better. We are not perfect all the time. Yes. Yay. So thank you so much, Hunter. It was a very beautiful, lovely conversation with you. Thank you, Nishan. It was really lovely conversation to talk to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https://nishangarg.me 
N-I-S-H-A-N-T-G-A-R-G.me. You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. There is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can. And thank you so much again. Thank you.